this podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking frankly and openly about crimes such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It is said that there is a high price for fame. Paparazzi constantly following you. Photos being taken of you almost 24 hours a day. Having no real sense of privacy. Your love life the subject of countless tabloid articles. Sex scandals involving you being front page news. However, it wasn't always this way. In the 1960s and 70s, celebrities were afforded privacy in their everyday lives. Scandals were normally handled by fixers, and you weren't constantly hounded by the press. You were also able to keep your love and sex life relatively secret. One such celebrity used this to his advantage, riding his fame of a hit television show to seduce women into engaging in whatever sex acts he wanted, all while filming them without their knowledge. Something that in the 1970s would have been career-ending. Nowadays can be the whole reason for someone's stardom. This behavior made him some friends. It also made him some enemies, one of which murdered the former TV star in June of 1978. Tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the murder of Bob Crane. Robert Edward Crane was born in Waterbury, Connecticut, and spent his childhood and teenage years in Stamford. He began playing drums, and by junior high was organizing local drum and bugle parades with his neighborhood friends. He later joined his high school's marching band and jazz bands, and the orchestra. He played for the Connecticut and Norwalk Symphony Orchestras as part of their youth orchestra program. He graduated from Stanford High School in 1946. In 1948, Crane enlisted for two years in the Connecticut Army National Guard and was honorably discharged in 1950. In 1949, Crane married his high school sweetheart, Anne Theresen. They had three children, Robert David, Deborah Ann, and Karen Leslie. In 1950, Crane began his broadcasting career at WLEA in Hornell, New York. He soon moved to WBIS in Bristol, Connecticut, 
and then WICC in Bridgeport, Connecticut. A 1,000-watt operation with the signal covering the northeastern portion of New York metropolitan area. In 1956, he was hired by CBS Radio to host the morning show at its West Coast flagship KNX in Los Angeles, partly to re-energize that station's ratings and partly to halt his erosion of suburban radio at WCBS in New York City. In California, he filled the broadcast with drumming and guests such as Marilyn Monroe, Frank Sinatra, and Bob Hope. His show topped the morning ratings with adult listeners in the Los Angeles area, and Crane became, quote, king of Los Angeles airwaves, unquote. Once again, live and with enthusiasm, it's Bob Crane's Hollywood. Oh, boy, with that enthusiastic opening there from Roger Gallagher, I don't know where we go from here. A very happy good evening. This is Bob Crane, and actually, I do know where we're going from here. We have Bobby Troop in the live group with us again tonight. We have Lynn Franklin to sing, and our in-person guest, Jerry Wald, who we'll be getting to in just a moment. Before we do anything, though, I better introduce myself, inasmuch as I have only been out here on the West Coast oh, for about three and a half years. We did a show back east, and we were sent out here. We, we moved out, we being my family, my wife, and... Uh, son and uh, my mother-in-law it was the usual package deal when you come to california and uh, you know living back there is a completely different way of life unless you have lived in california you don't know what it's like out here for instance beverly hills you've all heard this is where the stars live i live in tarzana which is right alongside of beverly hills it's just as exclusive just as exclusive as beverly hills but it's not beverly hills you see uh, to give you an idea of how exclusive Tarzana is, and this is no joke, we actually have a fire department with an unlisted phone number. Or, or how, how exclusive can you get? There's other things I want to tell Are you all set there, uh, uh, Herb Ellis on guitar? You're all set. All right. I, I, I want to tell you the story of my life. <laughs> well, maybe I'd better not. You better do it, uh, Herb. You do it yourself. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I ain't going to make it. You don't they know. caught me by surprise. I'm I sorry. <laughs> Crane's acting ambitions led to guest hosting for Johnny Carson on the daytime game show Who Do You Trust and appearances on The Twilight Zone, Channing, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and General Electric Theater. After Carl Reiner appeared on his show, Crane persuaded him to book a guest appearance on The Dick Van Dyke Show. After seeing Crane's performance on The Dick Van Dyke Show, Donna Reed offered him a guest spot on her program. After the success of that episode, his character, Dr. David Kelsey, was incorporated into the storyline, and Crane became a regular cast member, beginning with Friends and Neighbors episode. <laughs> yeah, this will take care of us for the first four innings, uh -huh. and the salami and sardines for the next five. Should I put up some hot dogs in case we go extra innings? Great idea. What was that? Well, it didn't sound like pay ball. Maybe the kids changed their minds. Jeff wouldn't dare. Who is it? Miss Powell. I'm Karen's home economics teacher. Oh, no. Oh, honey, she's come to grade Karen on her work. I thought she wasn't due till the end of the week. Well, that's what Karen said. I'll bet it's a surprise visit, so she has no chance for any extra preparation. Oh, honey, that poor kid, if she fails the course, it's our fault. All right, honey, look, get hold of yourself. The main thing is don't panic. Keep your wits about you. Crane continued to work full-time at KNX during his stint on the Donna Reed Show, 
running back and forth from the KNX Studios at Columbia Square to Columbia Studios. He left the show in December of 1964. In 1965, Crane was offered the starring role in a television situation comedy about a German POW camp. Hogan's Heroes became a hit and finished in the top ten in the first year of its air. The distinctive military-style snare drum rhythm that introduces the show's theme song was played by Crane himself. series lasted for six seasons, and Crane was nominated for an Emmy Award twice, in 1966 and 67. Hogan, where's my car? You promised it would be parked and waiting for me. It is not parked and waiting for me. Why isn't it, and where is it? Why? Well, uh... Eight o'clock, you said? Promise, I said? On my word of honor, you said. Eight o'clock shop, I said? Not one second later, you said. Did I say a.m. or p.m.? <laughs> Colonel Clink. I want you to know I understand your annoyance. Oh, I understand it too. But what I don't understand is where's my car? Well, let's be fair now. You by any chance recall what you wanted done to the car? To have it washed. And wax! Don't shrug off the toughest part. Do you know how long it takes for a good wax job? 25 minutes. 25 minutes? I've never heard anything more ridiculous. Hogan, I have to pick up General Burkhardt at the station in 45 minutes. General Burkhardt? Yes. Your car will be ready. In 1968, he became romantically involved with cast member Patricia Olson, who played Hilda under the stage name Sigrid Valdis. He divorced his wife Anne in 1970, just prior to their 21st anniversary, and married Olson on the set of the show later that year. Their son Scotty was born in 1971, and they later adopted a daughter Anne Marie. The couple separated in 1977 but according to several family members, reconciled shortly before Crane's death. In 1968, Crane and the series co-stars Werner Kempler, Leon Askin, and John Banner appeared with Elk Sommer in a feature film, The Wicked Dreams of Paula Schultz. Set in the divided city of Berlin during the Cold War, in 1969, Crane starred with Abby Dalton in a dinner theater production of Cactus Flower. Crane frequently videotaped and photographed his own sexual escapades. During the run of Hogan's Heroes, Richard Dawson introduced Crane to John Henry Carpenter, a regional sales manager for Sony Electronics, who often helped famous clients with their video equipment. The two men struck up a friendship and began going to bars together. Crane attracted women due to his celebrity status and introduced Carpenter as his manager. Later, they would videotape their sexual encounters, 
while Crane's son Robert later insisted that all the women were aware of the videotaping and consented to it, some, according to one source, had no idea that they had been filmed until informed by Scottsdale police after Crane's murder. Carpenter later became national sales manager at Akaya and arranged his business trips to concede with Crane's dinner theater touring schedule so that the two could continue seducing and videotaping women after Hogan's Heroes had run its course. Following the cancellation of Hogan's Heroes, Crane appeared in two Disney films, Super Dad in 1973, in the title role, and Gus in 1976. In 1973, he purchased the rights to the comedy play Beginner's Luck and began touring it as the star and director at the Showboat Dinner Theater in St. Petersburg, Florida, the La Mirada Civic Theater in California, the Windmill Dinner Theater in Scottsdale, Arizona, and other dinner theaters around the country. Between theater engagements, he got starred in a number of TV shows, including Police Woman, Gibbsville, Quincy M.E., and The Love Boat. In 1975, Crane returned to his own TV series with The Bob Crane Show on NBC, which was canceled after 13 episodes. Oh, dear. How did you ever find this place? Got a four-star rating in Gourmet Magazine. Welcome to the Space Burger Cafe. <laughs> Do you have reservations? Uh, yes, but what the heck, we're here anyway. <laughs> How about our John Glenn table? Hmm? That'll be fine, yes. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Murray, and I'll be your space commander tonight. <laughs> Good. Uh, what do you have? Uh, just a hamburger. Yeah, make that too. Uh, just a hamburger? Oh, I'm sorry, but that's, uh, it's not that simple. You see, you've got your Astro Burgers, and your Luna Burgers, and your Blast Off Burgers. Wait a minute, your... wait a minute. Can you give us that in Earth talk? Well, the Astro Burger is smothered with ketchup and tang. <laughs> and the, the, Luna Burger, the Luna Burger has green cheese on it. And the Blast Off Burger is loaded with chili beans. <laughs> And the giant step for mankind burger. Yeah, uh, bring us two Astro burgers and hold the ketchup and tank, please. Oh, you want a solo burger. <laughs> That's our biggie. <laughs> Over 86 sold. <laughs> we really move our tail for you. In early 1978, Crane taped a travel documentary in Hawaii and recorded an appearance on the Canadian cooking show Celebrity Cooks. Neither aired in the U.S. following his death. His appearance on Celebrity Cooks did air in Canada in late 1978. In June 1978, Crane was living in the Winfield Place Apartments in Scottsdale, Arizona, during a run of beginner's luck at the Windmill Dinner Theater. 
On the afternoon of June 29th, Crane's co-star Victoria Ann Barry entered his apartment after he failed to show up for a lunch meeting and discovered his body. Crane had been bludgeoned to death with a weapon that was never identified, though investigators believed it to be a camera tripod. He was struck twice in the left side of the head while asleep. He never woke up. An electrical cord had been tied around his neck. Semen was found on the body, though it was never collected or tested. It was theorized that the killer masturbated over the body as a final act of degradation to the victim. By the time Barry found the body of Crane, he had been dead for 12 hours. Crane's funeral on July 5, 1978 was held at St. Paul the Apostle Catholic Church in Westwood. An estimated 200 family members and friends attended, including Patty Duke, John Aston, and Carol O'Connor. Paul Bearers included Hogan's Heroes producer Edward Feldman, co-stars Larry Havis, Robert Clary, and Crane's son Robert. He was interned in Oakwood Memorial Park in Chatworth, California. Olson later had his remains relocated to the Westwood Village Memorial Park in Westwood and was buried beside him under her stage name Sigrid Valdis after her death from lung cancer in 2007. The Scottsdale Police Department, like most its small size, had no homicide division and was ill-equipped to handle such a high-profile murder investigation. The crime scene yielded few clues. No evidence of forced entry was found, and nothing of financial value was missing. Detectives examined Crane's extensive videotape collection, which led them to John Henry Carpenter, who had flown to Phoenix on June 25th to spend a few days with Crane. Carpenter's rental car was impounded and searched. Several blood smears were found that matched Crane's blood type. No one else known to have been in the car, including Carpenter, tested for that type. DNA testing was not yet available. With no significant material evidence, the Maricopa County attorney declined to file charges. It had long been rumored that Crane had a penile implant surgery in the 1970s to enhance his appearance in his porn videos. The autopsy put this to rest with the simple line, quote, external genitalia are normal adult male in type and distribution, unquote. Bob Crane never had a penile implant surgery. In 1990, Scottsdale detective Jim Raines, a former Phoenix homicide investigator, re-examined the evidence from 1978 and persuaded the county attorney to reopen the case. 
Although DNA testing of the blood found in Carpenter's rental car was inconclusive, Raines discovered an evidence photograph of the car's interior that appeared to show a piece of brain tissue. The actual tissue samples recovered from the car had been lost, but an Arizona judge ruled that the new evidence was admissible. In 1992, Carpenter was arrested and charged with Crane's murder. At the 1994 trial, Crane's son Robert testified that weeks before his father's death, Crane had repeatedly expressed a desire to sever his friendship with Carpenter. He said that Carpenter had become a quote-unquote hanger-on and a quote nuisance to the point of being obnoxious, unquote. Robert's son said, quote, my dad expressed that he just didn't need Carpenter kind of hanging around him anymore, unquote. He testified that Crane called Carpenter the night before the murder and ended their friendship. Carpenter's attorneys attacked the prosecution's case as circumstantial and inconclusive. They presented evidence including witnesses from the restaurant where the two men had dined that evening prior to the murder, that Carpenter and Crane were still the best of friends. They noted that the murder weapon had never been identified or found. The prosecution's camera tripod theory was sheer speculation, they said, based solely on Carpenter's occupation. They disputed the claim that the newly discovered evidence photo shown brain tissue and presented many examples of, quote, sloppy work, unquote, by police, such as mishandling and misplacing of evidence, including the crucial tissue sample itself. They pointed out that Crane had been videotaped and photographed in compromising sexual positions with numerous women, implying that one of them, fearing blackmail, may have been the killer. Other potential suspects proposed by the defense attorney included angry husbands and boyfriends of seduced women and an actor who had sworn vengeance after a violent argument with Crane in Texas several months earlier. Based on the lack of evidence, John Henry Carpenter was acquitted. He continued to maintain his innocence until his death four years later in 1998. Crane's life and murder were the subject of a 2002 film, Autofocus, directed by Paul Schrader and starring Greg Kinnear as Crane. Smile. It's a critical time for me. I, I need something big. This could be what you're looking for. This character, Hogan, he's quick on his toes, he's hip, he's a con artist. But I think it's what I've been working toward my whole career. I am such a fan. I just wonder if okay, you're together. You betcha. <laughs> Smile. Photography's always been my thing. I'm Bob Crane. John. John Carpenter. I'm a real if you like photography, you wouldn't believe this new equipment they sent me. It'll blow your mind. What will we do with it? Home movies. One of my clients is having a party up in the hills on Friday. Could be fun. Are you seeing another woman? Absolutely not. <laughs> oh. What's your secret? Three words. Don't make waves. You're a fortunate man. Yes, I am. There could be a very serious conflict here between your lifestyle and your career. How many women are there? How I'm many? Sorry. Thinking about getting out. Well, we got a good thing going, Big Daddy. Why ruin it? Bob Crane is a good guy. Craig's a loser! I don't know about you guys. I got things to hide. 
I want to restart my career. If I were to send you out again, I'd have to be able to tell people you're a new man. Well, tell them sex is normal. And snap! Snap it up, snap it up. It's good for you. I'm normal. Before it's too late. Snap! In November 2016, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office permitted Phoenix television reporter John Hook to submit the 1978 blood sample from Carpenter's rental car for testing, using a more advanced DNA technique than the one used in 1990. Two sequences were identified, one from an unknown male and the other two degraded to reach a conclusion. The DNA found on the door of John Carpenter's rental car is not, is not from Bob Crane. The tests actually picked up two DNA profiles. A major contributor is from a man. His identity is unknown. Second DNA profile is a partial profile, too degraded to reach any conclusions. This is an explosive development. I think we all went into this expecting this was going to come back John Carpenter as the guilty man. Bob Crane's blood in your father's car. Case closed. After the trial, Robert Crane speculated publicly that Crane's widow, Patricia Olson, might have had a role in instigating the crime. Quote, nobody got a dime out of the murder, he said, except for one person, unquote. Alluding to Crane's will, which excluded him, his siblings, and his mother, and left the entire estate to Olson. Robert Crane repeated his suspicions in a 2015 book. Maricopa County District Attorney Rick Romley, who prosecuted the case, responded, quote, We never characterized Patty as a suspect, unquote. He added, quote, I am convinced John Carpenter murdered Bob Crane, unquote. Officially, Crane's murder remains unsolved. It is my belief that John Henry Carpenter murdered Bob Crane. I believe that Crane became tired of his friendship with Carpenter and felt like he was a, quote, hanger-on, and so he ended the friendship. I believe that this enraged Carpenter because he wouldn't be able to have the sexual encounters that he had become accustomed to because of Crane's celebrity. I believe that in the late evening hours of June 28th or early morning hours of June 29th, 1978, that Carpenter went to Crane's apartment, that he found Crane asleep in his bed, and that in a fit of rage bludgeoned him to death. He then wrapped an electrical cord around his neck and masturbated over Crane as a final humiliation. I also believe that the Scottsdale police and medical examiner, having very little experience with these kind of crimes, unfortunately contaminated the crime scene, possibly to the point that this case may never be solved. I would like to announce that this podcast has teamed up with the Age of Radio Podcast Network. 
which will help me to find sponsorship for the show, which in turn will help me with purchasing equipment to elevate the quality of this show. I am excited and looking forward to big things in the future. You can contact me at truecrimetruckerspodcast at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. I am also on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. Until then, stay safe.